So, hey guys, welcome back. This is Josh with Accelerated Real Estate Investor. Listen, quick intro today. Uh, I am doing a very special podcast interview with Darren Bloomquist. He's the executive uh, vice president of market economics at auction.com. He is essentially their chief economist. I bring him on once a quarter. We've been doing it for over five years. And he's going to talk today about a few things. Number one, we're going to talk about job growth. Uh, but what's interesting is you're going to hear that the number of jobs available is exactly the number of people who are unemployed. It's literally the ratio of unemployed to job openings is one to one. So people need to get back to work. Uh, number two, we're going to talk about, about population migration and affordability. Uh, number three, we're going to talk about the three waves of possible foreclosure inventory coming next year in 2022. Uh, number four, we're going to talk specifically about the number of FHA significantly delinquent residential properties. Uh, that's the number one area where there's the most distress is in FHA. Uh, we're also going to talk specifically today, number five, about the uptick in foreclosure auction activity and the end of the eviction and the foreclosure moratoriums. And finally, we'll discuss what types of properties are being foreclosed on. No surprise here, primarily it's retail and office uh, and industrial where people left and did not go during the pandemic. So I'm so excited to be on again today with my friend Darren Bloomquist, VP at auction.com. I hope you enjoy this interview on the Accelerated Real Estate Investor Podcast. Here we go. Welcome to the Accelerated Investor Podcast with Josh Cantwell. If you're looking to retire early with forever passive income, you're in the right place. This podcast is the go-to destination for real estate investors, both active and passive, and multifamily apartment investors, both new, intermediate, and advanced. Now, sit back, listen, learn, and accelerate your business, your life, and your investing with the Accelerated Investor Podcast. So, hey guys, welcome back to Accelerated Real Estate Investor with Josh Cantwell. So excited that you could join me. For all of you guys that have engaged in our Facebook groups, online on our social media platforms, receive my emails. Thank you so much for engaging in our webinars. Uh, I have a special treat for all of you guys. You guys know once a quarter, uh, I bring back my good friend, Darren Bloomquist, who is the Vice President of Market Economics at Auction.com. Auction.com is one of the major, major players not only in selling properties on their platform, but also in providing data to major institutional players, as well as mom and pop investors, uh, both residential and commercial. Uh, Darren and I were talking before we hit the record button. We've been doing this now for over five years at my live events uh, on our podcast. Darren's been a regular contributor, not only to our podcast, but also, also to major, major news outlets like CNBC, Squawk Box, Fox, Fox News, they all rely on this data aggregation that he does at auction.com in order to get some insight on what's going to happen with the market and talk a little bit about what might be happening down the road. So it's always a pleasure, Darren, to welcome you back to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Josh. It's been, uh, it's been great to be part of your, your universe over the last few years. And I, yeah, I always learn a lot as well on these, on these podcasts. Well, yeah, and Darren is an investor himself. Uh, you know, continues to, to to buy some properties for his own portfolio, and we're always you know excited to have him aggregate this data for us. It does take a lot of work. By the way, they produce a lot of reports, uh, which are available on their website, auction.com. Is it Darren? Is it still like the news in the news? It, yeah, where that's right. Get that exactly. Uh, if you want to see the the reports I'm putting out, just go to auction.com forward slash in the news. And uh, a lot of the stuff we see here, plus more stuff, uh, is on there. One of the things that we've been doing there that I think is interesting is we, we've been doing this video series called Disposition Download, which is actually geared toward our clients who are the banks selling these foreclosure properties. But I think your audience would be interested. We have several of those where we talk to, we do videos with our, our buyers who are buying properties, actively investors out there on the front lines. And there's some great stories there about how buyers, um, we have a couple from Ohio 
that that are great stories of how investors are leveraging auction.com and other sources to invest even during the pandemic. So some good stuff there. Yeah, fantastic stuff, guys. Check it out, auction.com slash in the news. Uh, Darren is personally responsible for, you know, assembling that data and analyzing it and putting it out uh, to not only major, major institutional players, but thousands and thousands of residential investors, uh, mom and pop investors as well. Uh, So Darren, let's go ahead and jump in. Let's go ahead and talk first. Oh, by the way, I must tell my audience for catching this on uh, audio only, let's say on a podcasting platform, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, we are recording the screen as well, and this is available on YouTube. So go to you, go to YouTube and look for Accelerated Real Estate Investor with Josh Cantwell on YouTube, and you can see the slides that we are going to share. Darren, today we're going to talk primarily about jobs, and then we're going to talk a little bit more about the residential foreclosures that are going on. We're going to talk a little bit more about the types of foreclosures, both commercial and residential. We'll talk a little bit about population migration uh, and also affordability, and finally, At the end, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, where are the most foreclosures happening by loan type. So that is our agenda for today. So Darren, let's jump into slide number one um, and talk a little bit more about jobs. Uh, What is going on with jobs? Some interesting data around jobs available and the unemployed. So tell us what you're seeing right now regarding jobs. The job market bounced back. You can see that V shape in the blue line early on in the pandemic where we saw some pretty good gains in jobs after the huge uh, loss in March and April, especially April of last year, uh, where we, we lost uh, a lot of jobs, but you know, over 12 million jobs in one, one month there. But after that, you know, the, the line is kind of leveled off. We've seen this and we've even seen a month of, of decreases in jobs, but there's been this slow, steady growth in jobs really uh, over the last few months, six to nine months. June was actually a good month. We saw 850,000 new jobs added. So we're seeing this slow, steady decrease in job or increase in jobs now, which is good, but we're still 6.7 million jobs short of what we were before the pandemic. And on the right-hand side, we actually are seeing not a lot of improvement in the long-term unemployed if you look at that green line, the number of unemployed for 27 weeks and over, that it started to come down, but then in June, it bounced back. There's a little bit of a bounce back higher in that, mm-hmm. that uh, longer term unemployed. So we've seen some pretty good recovery that in general, the economy has bounced back pretty well, but there's still we're still a lot of jobs short of what we were prior to the pandemic. And the next slide does show maybe some of the reasons be- um, behind that, why that's happening. And that's on the, the left-hand side, you see the labor labor force participation rate is kind of stagnated. It dropped dramatically during the pandemic and it bounced back a little bit, but we're still not at a labor force participation rate that we were prior to the pandemic, meaning fewer people are out there actively looking for jobs and participating in the labor force. And that's why you we have these pretty low unemployment rates of 5.9%, still quite a bit above pre-pandemic, but pretty good impl- unemployment rates. But part of the reason behind that is because not as many people are participating and actually trying to look for jobs. And on the right-hand side, you actually see we're at a point where the number of job openings almost equals the number of unemployed, which during the pandemic, you see the blue line, number of unemployed spiked while the number of job openings dropped. But now those lines have almost converged, which means, and this is something that's somewhat puzzling economists and others out there is, is there's so many job openings. And actually, anecdotally, you hear a lot of, about businesses having trouble finding people to fill those job openings. Right. And uh, so you have this interesting uh, almost a recovery from from the pandemic is causing some problems that maybe were unforeseen. And one of those is a little bit of a labor shortage, which is is maybe surprising for folks. And there's different reasons for that and different theories for that. But at the end of the day, what it means for the housing market is that, especially for people who lost their jobs and have not regained them and our homeowners 
and maybe taking advantage of the forbearance programs and and not making their payments, but still not being foreclosed because of the forbearance program and the foreclosure moratorium, when those protections end, those folks may be in trouble and we could see, and we'll talk about this in a second, but there is this underlying wave of distress it's, that's kind of been hidden from the market because of these foreclosure protections that we will see coming to the forefront, I think in the next few months to year. now it's not going to be the type of wave we saw last time around. And we could talk about that more in a minute, but it is there. So, and, and these unemployment numbers speak to that as well. Yeah. Sounds like a couple things, a couple takeaways. Um, number one is that, like you said, the ratio of unemployed to job openings is one-to-one, meaning for everybody who is currently unemployed and seeking a job, uh, which is 9.2 million people, there are 9.2 million pe- million jobs available. So matching those people up with a job. But there is also uh, a drop in the total labor force participation rate uh, that matches slightly different data, which is those people seeking a job. Um, and so the number, total number of people seeking a job has dropped by a few points. Uh, so there's less people seeking long-term employment in general. Uh, But for those people that are seeking a job that are currently filing for unemployment and claim that they're looking for a job, uh, there are roughly 9.2, 9.3 million uh, unemployed and there are 9.2, 9.3 million job openings. So we've just got to get those people to work in a a job where their skill set will work for them. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, at the end of the day, you know, there there was a lot more people participating in the job market um, pre-pandemic. And, you know, those people now, for whatever reason, are not getting back to work. And a couple of theories. One is uh, jobs not available that matches their skill set. Number two is they're afraid to go back to work because of still some COVID uh, out, there, out there and they're scared for their health or they have a pre-existing condition. Um, also, many people working from home, kids not fully back into school. We are in the summertime where kids are home. Um, and so people can't get back to work because kids are home from school. So I really think, Darren, in my opinion, what would really be a... a a good time to look at this data is September and October when kids are back in schools, when kids are back in schools, it's going to allow those parents to get back to work. And then we'll kind of see some normalcy because really in the last month or two, as we started to get back to normal, the mask mandates have come away in a lot of areas. Then all of a sudden it was summertime and the kids are back home again. So a lot of parents don't want to go to work because their kids need daycare. Uh, They need care at home. Uh, so kind of a, still of a weird time because it's summertime as we're recording this. And so I'm interested to see the next time we record, which will be in October, uh, what happens in August, September and early October when people are, kids are back to school and thus the parents can get back to work. Uh, then we'll feel like we'll probably have some apples to apples comparison pre-pandemic, uh, let's say January of, of 2020 uh, versus October or even December of 2021 you might see some more apples to apples comparison because it still feels like we're comparing apples to oranges in a lot of cases, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, this is an um, unprecedented is an overused word with this pandemic, but it's certainly true. I think this is an environment we haven't seen before. Yeah, Darren, I've got to tell you that just this morning, switching on to the next topic, next slide, you know, I I have a rental property that probably five or six years ago, I couldn't, couldn't give away for $80,000. There was nobody that wanted to buy it. Um, I put it on the market on Wednesday for 124.9 and literally within a few hours got an over asking price offer of 127. Full price over ask uh, with no concessions, just paying the realtor commission, normal closing costs. And so there's still a tremendous amount of, 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 you know, there, there's not nearly as many properties available. And so in this next slide, I know we want to talk about uh, people moving, uh, population shift, people moving to different areas. And now can I ask of, what, what county that was in? Uh, that was in Cuyahoga County, Greater Cleveland. Okay. Uh, it was in a good part of Cleveland uh, in what we call Cam's Corners, uh, West Cleveland. And, you know, I saw on the purchase agreement that the buyer is moving from an apartment building. So their current address is an apartment unit. So they're moving out of an apartment and buying this home that we've had as a rental property for over 10 years. We put a little bit of money into it, not a ton, maybe about five grand, uh, some new flooring, uh, some updates in the kitchen, some updates in the bathroom, not a ton of money, but the house definitely shows nice. 
But me and my wife are ecstatic that we're able to sell this thing for 127 in one day. And it's going to close in early uh, August. So still, I think a, a big shortage of properties, uh, people moving towards areas where there's, you know, where the properties are more affordable. So tell us what is going on. Obviously, this map tells a story. What, yeah. what are we looking at relative to population migration and affordability? And this is going to give our audience some indication about where they should invest, where they could possibly be seeing some appreciation over the next couple of years. Yes, and we see investors using our platform following these trends. We see a much higher sales rate on our foreclosure properties that we're selling in our platform in these areas that have the positive net migration and are at least relatively affordable. And, and so one of the things that encourage for a very practical thing for your audience is to go to this heat map. I have a link here, or if you go to our in the news section, you'll see this heat map as well. And you can actually filter this map and just show the areas that have positive net migration, which is the orange, and then different price points. So, you know, so that's that's something you can go in and play around with to find the type of areas that may be good for your investing strategy. And, you know, just starting with the top 26 counties with the, with the most net migration, meaning Net migration is not including births and deaths. It's, it's just looking at people moving from county to county within the country. And uh, not surprisingly, Maricopa County, Arizona is the highest net migration. It added over 70,000 people wow. in 2020. And then you have Clark County, Nevada. Maricopa County is Phoenix. Clark County, Nevada, which is Las Vegas. And then you have a couple counties in Dallas, in Austin, Texas. And then you have some counties in Florida, Lee County and Polk County and Pasco County, which I believe are all in the, most of those are in the Tampa area. Mm -hmm. um, so you have these areas that are inland. Now, a lot of those areas are starting to get already pretty high priced. And so I also then did another cut where we looked at areas that are having positive net migration, but home prices are still below $200,000, median home prices. And, you know, when I talk to some of the investors, that's the areas, like I talked to an investor, for instance, who's using our service in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he's actually saying, you know, Chattanooga is a hotspot. It's become overpriced for him. So he's starting to go to some of the counties around Chattanooga and then into Georgia, which is just across the state line to find these areas that people are moving to kind of like your rental property. They're moving maybe from the urban areas out to suburban or even rural areas and um, there's 365 counties nationwide that fit the bill that have the positive net migration and are priced under $200,000. And so, you know, you have places like, uh, just some examples there, Oklahoma County, Oklahoma, Oklahoma City, Tulsa County, Oklahoma, Guilford County, North Carolina, which I'm not sure what area that's in, but um, you have Sedgwick County, Kansas, which is Wichita, you have Ada County, Idaho, which is in the Boise area, Lake County, Indiana, which is Indianapolis. You do have Butler County, Ohio is in the top 10, which is in your neck of the woods. Um, so those are the type of areas where you're still, you're actually seeing positive net migration, which is good for dem housing demand in the next few years. But you're also seeing, you know, maybe those places have not quite been discovered yet. So there's opportunities in terms of a little bit lower prices. Are you ready to automate and explode your real estate investing? We're searching for extremely motivated individuals who are sick and tired of wasting time and want to finally see real results from their real estate investing business. We're searching for investors looking to get to the next level and become a bigger, better version of themselves while being a more successful real estate investing entrepreneur. Apply for mentoring and coaching at joshcantwellcoaching.com forward slash podcast. That's joshcantwellcoaching.com forward slash podcast. That's fantastic information, man. I mean, to get this on an interactive heat map, which by the way, guys, you can get it on auction.com. Go there, check it out. And 365 counties 
that, as Darren said, to be specific, where I have a population migration of at least 10,000 gains in population, people that have moved in that area. Sorry, yeah, that actually that first part oh, sorry. It just means they have a, a population, total population of 10,000. So some of these are more rural right. counties, but then they have the positive. Net migration, more people yeah. in than out. Got it. And a median home price below $200,000, which is obviously makes it very cash flow friendly for rental properties, flip friendly if you're buying it below market value to be able to sell it to maybe a first time home buyer or just at a very affordable price that a lot of people can afford. Um, and thus hopefully have multiple offers for multiple buyers when you're ready to sell it. No surprise, Darren, that the top 15 counties with 10,000 negative net migration also are some of the most expensive counties uh, in the country with an average home price of over $700,000, which for many, you know, average workers, very tough for them to afford. Yeah. And so those are places, you know, just probably not a big surprise here, but Los Angeles County, California is the biggest net migration loser. Cook County, Illinois, and Chicago, Kings and Queens County, New York, even Santa Clara County, mm -hmm. California is, is in the top five there with the biggest net migration loss, which is in the Bay Area. So people are moving out of those, especially the pandemic has accelerated. And this is 2020, but um, pandemic has accelerated that that move from a, from these high priced areas because people now can are more flexible uh, to work from from anywhere. And my understanding, Darren, and we don't have, I don't think we have a slide on this, but because the total number of properties on the MLS is down about 60%, at least the last time I recorded, it was down from over 3 million normally on the MLS down to about a million, uh, was down roughly two thirds. You know, a lot of people are still not necessarily selling because of the pandemic. Maybe they lost their job or they just don't want to move because of COVID reasons. So even in an area like Los Angeles or like the Bay Area, um, I imagine prices for homes are still going up because mm -hmm. the economy is getting back on track and also because of the lack of inventory. So even though people are moving out, prices are still going up uh, because there's just no inventory to work with, right? There's all these different levers that can be pulled. And normally you would think an area where people are moving out and they're moving to more affordable areas. They're moving to other areas with different uh, environments uh, that the prices would go down. If, if there were three or 4 million properties on the MLS and the, the, the inventory of homes was normal, uh, those prices might be stagnating or even going down because they're losing pop population. But because the number of properties totally available is way down uh, over pre-pandemic levels, prices in those areas still keep going up, even though they're losing population. It's a pretty wild environment. Yeah, it, that's absolutely correct. So even in these blue areas right now, the market is doing well, but yeah. you know, more, more forward looking, I think these are the markets that are more at risk over the next few years of, of starting to stagnate or possibly even seeing a correction. Fantastic stuff. So I know Darren, we talked about there's possible possibly three waves of foreclosure inventory coming probably in 2021, I'm sorry, 2022. And a lot of it has to do with the, you know, uh, the forbearance programs, the uh, foreclosure moratorium programs, and a lot of those coming to an end. Uh, those have now in some cases been running uh, for 15 months. And a lot of people are talking about it's time to end those as, as the economy gets back on track. So what are these three possible waves of foreclosure happening possibly next year. There's a lot of talk about there's going to be this massive tsunami of foreclosures. Uh, a lot of it, I think, is marketing hyperbole, but there are definitely going to be some more opportunities. So, so what are these three waves that we think might be happening? Yeah, I'd describe it, even though I use the word waves here, you know, that's obviously a very vague word, but I would, in my mind, it looks more like a tide, a slowly rising tide, as opposed to a tsunami, <laughs> a tidal wave. And so these are kind of the tide rolling in here, the three waves of the tide rolling in. And, and we've gotten a lot more clarity on this since the last time we talked because the government agencies now have come out with extending the foreclosure moratorium until the end of July. But they have, in their language, it's very different than the last, the, the last few times they've extended because they've said this is the last extension. They've specifically said this. This is the last time we're extending the foreclosure moratorium. So it looks like pretty definite that 
Mm -hmm. End of July, foreclosure moratoriums will end, the, the national foreclosure moratorium. And so that gives us clarity. And then the other thing that gives clarity is that the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which kind of oversees the mortgage servicing industry, among other things, has come out with a rule that kind of comes in and fills the, the gap left by the foreclosure moratorium expiring. And that rule, it does, it does kind of push a lot of foreclosures out to 2022. However, it does have some big exceptions. And, and so that the first big exception there is that properties that were delinquent before the pandemic started, seriously delinquent, the foreclosure process can start on those right away uh, before 2022. So there is a there is a wave of at least foreclosure starts coming in potentially in the last quarter of this year. There's about 200,000 loans that are seriously delinquent and were seriously delinquent before the pandemic started, meaning they're very, these people are in a very deep hole. Um, they were already at least 90 days delinquent in March of 2020, and they're still delinquent, meaning, you know, they're well over now a year and a half delinquent. Right. And those 200,000 loans also are not protected by forbearance and they're not protected by, they're not in any loss mitigation. So those are the highest risk of once that moratorium is listed, probably start at least entering the foreclosure pipeline in the last few months of 2021. And then, as you say, probably hitting the actual market at the foreclosure sale, or possibly, you know, some of these homeowners will sell pre-foreclosure mm -hmm. in early 2022. And then this, the second piece behind that is, is there's another about 325,000 properties. And these numbers are in the graph there at the right. That's a little bit hard to read, but this, this is data from Black Knight, which has done some really good work on this. But these 325,000 are properties that are in loss mitigation, meaning they're actively trying to get into some kind of loan modification or something that will help them avoid foreclosure. Or they went delinquent after the pandemic, meaning it's more likely that the pandemic was what caused their delinquency. Mm -hmm. But they're not in, again, th those folks are not in loss mitigation or forbearance. So I know it gets, there's a lot of moving parts here, but these I, I consider it the second kind of level of risk because they're in loss mitigation, but as we've seen historically, there's a good percentage, at least during the last crisis, about 50% of people who got a loan modification, that loan modification did not stick for the long term and they eventually ended up in foreclosure. So that's another wave coming, probably won't start the foreclosure process until 2022 for sure. And then the biggest wave, but it's also the least risky wave, uh, Black Knight is estimating there's 900,000 loans that are right now protected by forbearance, meaning they're, they're not making, they're most likely not making their payments, but the bank is not foreclosing because they're in this forbearance program. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But 900,000, they're going to reach the end of that forbearance sometime this year, 2021. And that's a pretty big number. Um, and, and they don't have the opportunity to extend their forbearance longer. They've, they reached the maximum 18-month term allowed by forbearance. So those loans will now then have to exit forbearance, meaning they're not protected. The homeowner will either have to start making their payments again, get into some kind of loan modification. Uh, but then there's also going to be a certain percentage of those that will go into foreclosure. We've seen Historically, up to this point, about 15% of loans that have exited forbearance have gone into this bucket of, of properties or of loans that are delinquent and there's no loss mitigation, so they're, they're likely to enter foreclosure. So um, we have these ways, but to put this in context, I mean, if you add all these up, it's 1.5 million, but I would estimate, I mean, it's hard to gauge this, but I would estimate it's reasonable to think that maybe 20% of that 1.5 million will actually end up completing the foreclosure process, which leaves you with about a total of 300,000 
loans. And that's going to be that go into foreclosure. And that's going to be probably over a period of one and a half to two years. So get, getting into 2023, really, uh, when we're seeing these, these loans complete the foreclosure process and hit the market. And to put that in context, in 2019, before the pandemic, there were about uh, 200 to 250,000 completed foreclosures. So you are, we are adding back in more than a year's worth of kind of extra mm-hmm. foreclosures, which, which will, I think, impact the market. But uh, during the last crisis, <laughs> the worst year of the, the great financial recession crisis, we saw over a million properties complete foreclosure. So we have an extra 300,000. That's nowhere near the, the level that we were seeing during the last uh, crisis. I remember the last time we recorded, Darren, you had a, a slide that said the business as usual foreclosure. So if the business as usual foreclosures of just normal death, disability, divorce, bankruptcy, that kind of stuff, that just happens, business as usual, obviously no pandemic, there's roughly about 200,000 that complete the foreclosure process. Darren's saying here over really a year and a half to two year period, if we have 200,000 business as usual foreclosures, we might add another 300,000 over that 24 month period where they finish the foreclosure. So it'll tick up from 200,000 or so to maybe 350,000, 400,000, because they're going to, that extra 300,000 will be spread out over maybe 18 months to two years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you might add 150,000 in 2022 and maybe 150,000 in 2023. Uh, so you go from a business as usual, 200,000, you bump that up to 350, maybe 400,000, nowhere near the million that Darren referenced uh, back in you know 2008, 9, 10, uh, in the busiest year of all the foreclosures. So, you know, that tsunami of deals that a lot of, uh, you know, good marketers use the hyperbole, they like to use to hype up the market, sure, we're going to see more foreclosures, but it is not even close, nowhere near. Um, not only that, but uh, Darren, I don't know if you have any, I don't think we have a slide on it here, but can you comment on the total number of available properties? Um, we had that slide in the last time we recorded about the MLS, and I think it was usually about 3 million to 3.5 million of normal MLS listings had dropped all the way down to a million, I think it was 1.05 million. Because we do have obviously a, a very low inventory still. Uh, that's why my that one rental property sold so fast. Uh, yeah. So I'm curious if we're still at that level compared to three months ago, or if you have any information on that. That's at your yeah. Point. That's a great question. We I would say we we've, we've hit a a turning tipping point in the market where we were past the trough in inventory. Mm-hmm. It has come. I think for the last four months, three to four months, we have seen inventory creeping back up. It's, it's, I think, maybe closer to 1.2 to 1.3 million now mm-hmm. um, off of that low of one, one point, you know, basically 1 million. So it's still well below, it's still like 20 to 30% below year ago levels, but we've seen that tipping point where I think supply has bottomed out and we're starting to tick up. So that's, you know, but it's still very low inventory, which is good for sellers right now. Yeah. Still good for sellers, but maybe, uh, you know, I think we've, impact, we've passed kind of an important tipping point because also demand, demand is also still very strong, but some of the demand metrics that we look at in the retail market have slipped just a little bit. Mortgage, purchase mortgage applications have now been going down for several weeks from a year ago. So some of the, the f- pandemic induced market frenzy is starting to just calm down a little bit, which I think is actually a good thing. I do too. Certainly doesn't mean the market is all of a sudden crashing nowhere near close to that, but that some of that frenzy is dying down. Yeah. And some of the price appreciation will start to level off. I mean, the more inventory, the more normal sort of business as usual inventory that begins to hit the market, Mm -hmm. uh, that will help. And then obviously this influx of additional inventory we just discussed from all the additional foreclosures that extra 300,000 roughly uh, that will hit the market in the next two years will help. I, I would say, you know, in addition to the foreclosure piece, some of this, especially that 900,000 forbearance piece, there's going to be a good portion of that that also ends up not as a foreclosure sale, but as a homeowner just selling. Mm-hmm. Um, 
pre-foreclosure and, and even it's, you know, it could be a normal sale, but because of the forbearance, they've been able to kind of sit on their home and stay hunker down at home. But once forbearance ends, they'll be more motivated to sell. And so that will, I think, also increase inventory on the MLS in addition to the distressed market. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. A lot of it's going to end up as a foreclosure sale through either a, a sheriff sale or on the auction.com platform. Uh, but certainly a lot of those are just going to sell maybe slightly below market or even for full retail price. But there's an underlying distress or forbearance that nobody knows about, right? Um, but it's going to have to hit the market and that's the that's the exit strategy. So tell us a little bit more about like what's happening with some of these breakdowns with FHA. FHA still seems to be the area where there's the most amount of distress. Obviously, those people put the least amount of money down. They're often the least savvy buyers. Uh, they don't have a lot of protections or extra money. They're often saving just that three or four or five percent that they can put down. And then when something happens, you know, it typically sees a lot of a lot of stress. It's not necessarily subprime lending, but there's just not as much, uh, I guess, protections or stability behind that loan for those particular buyers. So it ends up being an area where there can be a lot of distress when something like a pandemic hits. And so what is going down with these, you know, what's going on with the FHAs and the delinquencies there? Yeah. Um, you know, FHA is, is taking up a disproportionate share of seriously delinquent homes. They, you know, they've, they've got, or mortgages, they've got over 805,000. That's over that out of about, I think, 1.5 to 6 million total seriously delinquencies. So they're making up almost half of the seriously delinquencies, even though as in, in terms of loan originations, they only make up about 15 to 20% of the market. Wow. So there's certainly the biggest risk factor here, which is why I kind of focus in on it. And, you know, all the points you made are exactly right about why they're the biggest risk factor. And so just looking where, uh, how much, how much of this FHA book is protected right now by forbearance, which is about, they've done very well of getting people into forbearance. 77% of these seriously delinquent loans are in forbearance being protected but right now there's about 89,000 that are not protected. And so when the moratorium lifts would likely enter foreclosure, but then behind that, you do have, you know, still that 620,000 that plus that it's going to be tougher than other loans to, to get these folks performing again, even once they exit forbearance because of the, the lower down payments, as you talked about, the lower credit scores we've seen with this, these types of loans over the last few years and the higher debt to income ratios that we've seen. You know, these are not on the level of subprime loans, as you say, but I would say that, thank you. Last five years, these are the riskiest kind of game in town, at least as, at a large scale. So that's something to look forward, you know, to look out for. And the next slide shows kind of where we could see that show up and you do tend to see more of these uh, unprotected FHA loans in the Northeast. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. Ohio is, is actually a pretty big state there in the Rust Belt and the East in general uh, just seems to, to be more pickup there with the FHA. Right. Probably product. because those were more affordable homes maybe over the last five or 10 years because there was so much foreclosure damage done by the last uh, financial crisis, there was more affordability. People could you know, apply for and use an FHA loan more often in, in Indiana and in Ohio, you know, Pennsylvania, those types of areas, Western New York, um, obviously not New York City, but Western New York, uh, those types of areas, you know, the more West you go, the, the, the harder it is to be, you know, affordable and thus, you know, less FHA loan activity. And actually, there. I mean, Unfortunately, in New York, it's especially in New York, I would say they're still dealing with a, a lot of the legacy loans of the last crisis. And mm -hmm. some of those are FHA. And so that's being added into what's been back being backlogged over the last year or so. In my newest real estate investing book, The Flip System, you'll learn the proven secrets and strategies that I've used to be a successful real estate investor. You'll also hear the story of my journey from quitting my job to doing over 2,000 units of apartments. 
The Flip System is now available for a limited time, and you can grab your free copy at getflipsystem.com slash podcast. You'll learn the same proven principles and secrets and investing strategies that I used to quit my job and pursue a life of financial freedom. In this book, I'm sharing exactly how I was able to personally close over 750 profitable real estate deals, make over 400 private lender loans, raise over $30 million, and acquire over 2,000 units of cash-flowing apartments. Get my newest book now for free at getflipsystem.com slash podcast. That's getflipsystem.com slash podcast. Yeah, it looks like foreclosure activities definitely picked up a lot now that some of these moratoriums, especially on, uh, you know, alternative types of loans like private money loans, hard money loans, those technically didn't fall under the, the government uh, foreclosure moratorium because they were not owner occupied. They were investment loans and investment properties. I remember a year ago recording with you and all of these were zero. Like there was no foreclosure activity anywhere. Yeah. Uh, things definitely seem to have picked up. Yeah, we're seeing on the left-hand side, it's comparing the second quarter of this year to the second quarter of 2020, which is when the pandemic hit. So all the numbers are much higher than a year ago because of the kind of artificially low numbers, as you said, are almost zero in some places. And so you see these huge jumps, which is the point there is, I don't want to over-sensationalize this, but the point is that foreclosures have, have come, bounced back. Um, there are a lot more happening than there were a year ago. However, to counter that on the right, you see the foreclosure activity in the second quarter compared to the second quarter of 2019, which is kind of a more of a normal business as usual year. We're still, in most states, we're still below those pre-pandemic levels. There are a couple exceptions there that are smaller volume states like uh, North Dakota and Iowa is pretty close to pre-pandemic levels. But in most states, we're, we're more in the range of a third or below of pre-pandemic mm-hmm. levels. And so that's, uh, that's what we're seeing in terms of inventory. But the other point I want to make here is that there is even though in the midst of a moratorium, the moratorium is still in place, foreclosures are happening. There is inventory there. It's just more limited. And these are mostly going to be vacant properties, which actually investors tend to like that are going to foreclosure sale right now. Yeah, you bet. Now there's a lot of other properties being foreclosed on, kind of comparing them all in this slide from retail to office, to farmland, to multifamily, single family. No surprise that the most types of properties being foreclosed on are retail and office. Obviously, very few people shopping during the pandemic when we were all locked up and very few people going to the office when uh, everyone was working from home. And so there's a lot more distress and more foreclosures happening in the commercial space. My quick interpretation, I don't know if this is accurate, but my my knee jerk is simply because they're commercial properties. There is no foreclosure moratorium on commercial. There is no government protections uh, versus in residential, especially people who are occupied. We just talked about all the forbearance programs that are available and eviction uh, eviction and foreclosure moratoriums that have been available on residential. Commercial has no such protections. So just maybe maybe your interpretation of this slide, Darren, what are you saying? Yeah, absolutely. And just to, I apologize, I left the actual percentages off here, but just to give you a, a baseline, all commercial there, that blue line near the bottom, that should be 44%, where all residential is 26%, meaning we're seeing 44% of the pre-pandemic levels in commercial of foreclosure and only 26% of residential. I do think your interpretation is right uh, with the lack of protection. And then on top of that, you have the uh, additional risk because of the nature of this pandemic caused people to flee offices and go home. So they're still using their homes, but they're not using their offices, they're not shopping. And so those areas were the ones that got harder hit. Right. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Darren, I'm going to skip to the very last slide. I'm going to skip over the different types of loans that are in foreclosure because we already kind of highlighted FHA. There's just some more proof of that just for the sake of time. Skip to the last slide here, which is really talking about um, single family rent growth uh, back above pre-pandemic levels. And so a lot of my followers, listeners, 
are both residential and commercial investors buying rental properties, building portfolios. What are we seeing now? Um, and what has the story been for the last you know, 18 months regarding rent and regarding growth of rent? And what areas are some of the hottest places to own rentals? Yeah, and this is, by the way, this is data from CoreLogic. I, I put MBA there at the bottom, so I apologize. There. But just to give credit where credit is due. So sure. yeah, what we're saying, what we're seeing is at least the single family rent market has bounced back very strongly in in the wake of this pandemic. And I think the reasons behind that are kind of been well talked about is people actually want to have a home now, and especially a single family home with a little more space. And so there's there's a high demand for it. And then on top of that, you have the people who normally might sell are not selling. And so there's less supply. And this has caused the the growth to 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 bounce back in, in terms of rents. And I think detached versus there's stronger demand in the detached single family market. So again, that speaks that that's on the left there. The the orange line spiking up is are the detached rent growth. And that speaks to people having more desire to live in a home that's that has a yard, it's a little bit more space than an attached situation. Although we're still seeing growth in the attached market. And then, yeah, the areas that that are doing well are the areas kind of going back to that demographic slide that are experiencing increases in population, Phoenix, Las Vegas, but are also still, it's somewhat relatively affordable. You know, you see they're below $2,000 for a single family rental in those, some of those top markets. Whereas if you go to the bottom, you know, you see the the Cook counties of the world, Chicago and 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 Boston and even Los Angeles. Los Angeles has growth, but it's it's not as as strong. Mm-hmm. We talked about that earlier with the demographics and its rental price is close to three thousand dollars. So it all ties back to <laughs> I think the demographic and affordability trends with the rental market as well. Right. Yeah, you see the areas we discussed, you know, Arizona, Nevada, a lot of the areas that I like where I own apartment buildings, Georgia, Texas, South Carolina. Uh, Surprisingly, uh, you see Washington, even Seattle, uh, with some good rent growth in a major market. Uh, But again, there's population migration towards Seattle, like we discussed on one of the earliest slides. Mm -hmm. Of course, Orlando just seems to be growing and growing and growing. Mickey Mouse and everything that happens in Orlando, so you know, affordable taxes are low, no state income tax, um, and very affordable. Still, just sixteen hundred dollars for a rental in Orlando. So, still and still growing at roughly three percent. But again, that speaks to I think we've made the right decision. Me personally, speaking from a personal uh, basis, uh, to be investing in those kind of areas like Texas, uh, you know, Midwest, South, Southeast. Uh, has worked well. We've stayed away from the coast. We've stayed away from California. We've stayed away from New York, New Jersey. Uh, we've stayed away from those kind of areas. And you're seeing population migration going that direction. Uh, people enjoying the Sun Belt, um, as well as you know some areas in some states that have lower no income tax uh, versus the high tax areas of Chicago, New York, and California. Continues to tell the story we've been talking about, Darren, for over over a couple you know a couple of years now. Uh, pretty pretty interesting stuff. So, Darren, listen, I know we've got to run. Uh, can't wait to have you back. Uh, we'll have you back at the end of Q3 uh, to tell the story again about what's going on in the market. Uh, to my audience and listeners, if you have not yet engaged in auction.com, you are missing out, uh, not only for inventory, for properties to bid on, to buy on, uh, but also all of the data that Darren uh, puts together and uh, aggregates and disseminates and then reports on, uh, make sure you go to auction.com slash in the news uh, to engage. I mean, literally, they're putting out reports on a weekly basis uh, on various different topics. And of course, these interactive maps especially uh, are being helpful to not only my listeners, but listeners across the country to find out where to invest and where the population is moving and where they're still affordable. So Darren, any kind of final parting uh, thoughts or words of advice before we wrap? Yeah, just a quick, you know, uh, selfless, shameless plug for auction.com, but I'm excited about it and is that, you know, as you look at areas that are good to invest in, first of all, we have a good portion of our auctions are online, so you can go and bid online anywhere in the country. You don't have to be physically present. 
And then for the portion of, there are a portion of properties that are up for foreclosure auction, which in the past, you traditionally actually had to physically go to the courthouse to bid on those. But there's an increasing number of counties where we have something called remote bid available, and it's on our mobile app. And you can actually, so an auction's taking place, let's say in uh, Cuyahoga County, you can go on your mo- the auction.com mobile app and bid remotely and don't have to go down to the courthouse, but you're participating in the live auction. You can see what other bidders are doing. So we're excited about that because it does open up the possibilities for investors to bid outside of just their immediate area and find those markets that are best for them and find the inventory in those areas and, and be able to bid conveniently without having to, to be there physically. Oh, love it. Yeah, thanks for the plug. Very helpful tool. Thanks for that. Uh, Darren, thanks again for joining me today on Accelerated Real Estate Investor. We'll see you next time. So, hey, guys, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Darren. He'll be back on roughly three months from now to continue to educate you and all of my listeners about what's going on in the foreclosure markets, the housing markets, the multifamily markets. I hope you enjoyed the interview. If you did, don't forget to subscribe. Click the subscribe button. Leave us a five-star rating and review. If you're an investor looking for a deal, looking to invest in one of my future projects, don't forget to go to freelandventures.com slash passive and register on our investor platform. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you next time. Take care. Hey, Josh here. And do you want to win a free Accelerated Investor t-shirt? All you have to do is give Accelerated Investor, our podcast, Accelerated Investor, a rating and a review on iTunes. Okay, do that now. Then send us a screenshot on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. What we're going to do then is every week we're going to pick our favorite rating and review and we're going to send that person a free t-shirt and maybe again some other cool fun stuff as well from Accelerated Investors. So again, don't forget to take a screenshot, leave a rating, review, take a screenshot, send it to us so we know exactly who you are and then once a week, every week on the podcast, we will announce a new winner. Don't forget to take a screenshot and send it to us so we know exactly who you are. We'll announce a new winner every week. You were just listening to the Accelerated Investor Podcast with Josh Cantwell. If you enjoyed this episode and learned something new, help us build the AI community by leaving a review and five-star rating on our iTunes podcast channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss another episode. To see passive investing opportunities, visit freelandventures.com slash passive. To start your journey toward the lifestyle you've always dreamed of with multifamily apartments, apply for one-on-one coaching with Josh at www.joshcantwellcoaching.com.